ask you to take a Bible, hope you will, and turn to Matthew chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew. There, the first, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 5. The longest sermon we have that Jesus preached that we have recorded in Scripture is uh, this passage, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like to look at just the opening verses of uh, what Jesus said as we prepare for... Uh, hearing our missionaries and our missions conference speaker next next week. The opening verses are called the Beatitudes. They describe, they describe a, a true Christian, a person in right standing, standing with God. Hear God's word. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So ends the reading of God's word. It may seem of really no consequence in comparison to what is happening in the world this past week. But you may have read or heard about a high school wrestler in Iowa, an exceptional, exceptionally good wrestler who refused to compete against a girl there at the state tournament because he said it conflicted with his religious beliefs. Tenth grader, Joel Northrup, his dad is a pastor, and he forfeited any chance of, of becoming champion when he defaulted on his match against ninth grader, uh, Cassie Heckelman. And uh, that was at the Iowa state high school wrestling tournament. Here's what he said, as a matter of conscience and my faith, I do not believe that it is appropriate for a boy to engage a girl in this manner. I'll come back to that in a little while. Here in the Beatitudes, we have the description of a character of a follower of Christ. And then he, at the end of the Beatitudes and the section about persecution, Jesus gives two analogies. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. So what I'd like to do simply this morning is to look at each of those and try and understand what that says about us. Salt, first metaphor, is negative. It does not say you will become or try to be or act like salt, he says a follower of Christ, a Christian, is 
salt. We are something. There's been a change, a conversion from the world. So there's a difference between his followers and those who are not his followers. How does this happen? It happens by understanding God's plan for us, to realize that that we are born spiritually dead to God, that we are apart from God. And God has said that the wages of our sin, the punishment for our disobedience to him, is death. Now our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, there in Genesis 1 and 2, they had a spiritual sense that we don't have they, they had a connection with God literally where they walked and talked with him. And God warned them that if you eat of a certain tree that you'll die. Well, they, they broke God's law. They did eat of that tree. They did not die physically, but they died spiritually. So at that moment, they were cut off from him. There was no more communication like they had had. Now there was guilt and shame from him, from one another. That's where we start off. But even when God pronounced a curse there on what they had done, he also gave a a glimmer of hope that he would send one who would come later. We know that he's called the Redeemer in the Old Testament. And so we have prophecies by Isaiah and others, hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before Jesus became a man, about this Redeemer who would come. And Jesus was born. He said, I came down from heaven. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. He said, I and the Father are one. So Jesus was God the Son, and he allowed himself to be crucified. And he suffered there the punishment for sin, not his own sin since he had no sin. But he took took our sin, guilt upon himself. God put it on him and punished him in our place. Then he died. Three days later, he rose from the grave. Because where there is no sin, he'd broken the power of sin, then there can be no death. So he rose from the grave. He told his followers the last command he gave to them was to go and to make disciples of all nations. So now we receive that gift that he has done. It doesn't occur to us um, automatically. But we have to receive that gift through faith and repentance that we believe that, yes, I've committed sin against God. I've committed crimes against God. And they deserve death. And they're going to... I'm going to die. Uh, I'm going to die not only physically but eternally if I, if I don't have forgiveness. And the only way I can have forgiveness is to have what Jesus did credited to my account. The Bible calls that imputed to my account. And so I trust I receive what he did on my account that he died for me. I believe in Christ. I believe that and I repent of my sin and I turn, I turn away from God and I turn to God. Now, when that happens, there's a change. Now there's a conversion. A conversion has taken place, and we no longer are just like the world. We are salt. But I want to ask you, have you received that gift before I go any further? Because if you've not, you're not yet salt. These passages don't have any application to you. But God's desire and our desire is that you would know him today and that you would put your simple trust, your faith in him. You say it's got to be more complicated than that. It isn't. That's it. Believe and repent. That's it. What does salt do? Well, it does now what it did then. It seasons, it adds flavor. If you have food with absolutely no salt in it, no salt used in the cooking, no salt put on it later, it's just bland. The Bible is saying apart from God, life is is bland, it's boring. The world and its sin, it grows boring. How many times can you... 
be immoral and drink and abuse yourself and others, and it still be very interesting. I had a friend growing up. He's four years older than I am. His name's James Saxon. And when we were growing up in my small hometown, he was well-known, and for lack of a better term, I can't think of a, a more acceptable synonym, he was a hellraiser with a capital H all the time. That was just his style. He just was a wild guy. And he was converted as a junior in college. He had been the rush chairman of his fraternity there at the University of Alabama. And he told me later, he said, Chip, I had people at 2 a.m. beating on my door saying, What in the world has happened, Saxon? What has happened to you? He went to Las Vegas. He was invited by a friend whose dad was taking him out to Las Vegas. And I saw him the week after he got back. And I said, What do you think? He said, You know what? They're doing the same stuff out there we do here in the fraternity house, but they're just doing it with more money and more style, but it's the same boring thing. <laughs> Life without God has got pleasures, but the Bible itself says it's a short-lived pleasure. It's the passing pleasures of sin. Salt adds flavor. Salt preserves. In New Testament times, salt was very valuable. You know this, Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. That's where the term, the person is not worth their salt, originated from. And why was it so valuable? Well, obviously, no refrigerators, no deep freezes. It was the most common of all preservatives. The temperature and around the Mediterranean, then and now, for six months out of the year, was more than 90 degrees, so it was a tropical environment. One of the main industries was fishing. Well, if you caught fish in the Sea of Galilee, this huge lake, and you wanted to make some money, then you had to haul them back to the big market in Jerusalem, which was two days away. The only way you could get them there without them being decayed was to pack them in salt. So salt was a valuable preservative. So when Jesus says that those who follow him are the salt of the earth, he's teaching that apart from God, the world is rotting. But through his power, his disciples are able to have a preserving and purifying effect upon it. Now, if we understand this, it can guard us against two mistakes, two simple mistakes. The first mistake is where we think that the world is basically good and it will gradually become better and better. But the truth is the world is a degenerating world. And I had to say this at the first service, and I have to correct a lot of it. I had several people come up to me and offer revisions <laughs> to the sermon so I can correct them. I really am optimistic. But the world is not only rotten, it is rotting. The world doesn't see itself as that. It sees itself as very alive, very healthy. But you might say it's decaying. A hundred years ago, there was great optimism. I never saw it. I didn't live to see it, but I've read writers. I read H.G. Wells when I was young. I read his science fiction kind of things, and he was in the middle of that change, where there was a change from optimism, where he, through medicine we can cure every disease, through technology we can solve every problem, through education, we can make everyone better and better. And then after World War I and then World War II, that optimism disappeared. And by the way, for those that still think education is the answer, and of course we, I, we're high on education. But if that's true, if education makes people better, where should the most moral place on the planet be? A college campus, right? You ever see how many locks are on doors around college campuses? It's just not true. 
Education does not make us more morally good in and of itself. So that optimism was shattered. So we can be saved from the mistake of thinking that everything's getting better and better all the time. Mistake number two is thinking, well, because the world is rotten, you might say, therefore we should disassociate from it. We should disconnect from the world. Just disengage. Surround yourself only with Christian people who share your values. If not actually physically living in a monastery, then maybe you just associate with similar people to where you don't have to rub shoulders with the world. Well, the problem there is salt never does any good sitting up on a shelf in the salt shaker. It has to be rubbed into the meat. We must allow God to rub us into every sphere of life. Business world, work world, education, academics, entertainment industry, publishing, media, politics, raising the family, at home, everywhere. And it's amazing how the course of evil can be set back by Christians just being salt in day-to-day life. Christians as salt are to serve a preserving function in the world. For example, here's a student. Everyone around this student is cheating. And they, the others, want this student to cheat with them. And the student says, I can't do that. I'm committed to Christ, and that's against my conscience. I had a baseball coach in junior high school. <clears throat> We're out there, and the language is getting kind of, the air is turning blue around the baseball field. The coach walks over to us, had a baseball bat in his hand. He said, come here, guys. I want this to stop. I want this language to stop because I don't like it. And he took the ball bat and pointed up to, to the sky and said, he doesn't like it. Ah, I've never forgotten that. That was salt in that situation. When I was a campus minister at Ole Miss, I taught as many as five fraternity Bible studies every week. They were evangelistic fraternity Bible studies. I'd show up with a box of paperback Bibles, hand them out and tell the guys which page to turn to. And in each fraternity, there were at least two guys that were Christians who would recruit and who would publicize the Bible study. I said, I can't do anything to get people there, but once you get them there and I'll come in and teach. The Bible studies would last no more than like 15 minutes. And one night I came over there and these two guys in this well-known fraternity there on the campus said, we just finished a chapter meeting. So at the chapter meeting, we're planning a big party for next week or two. They started talking about the movies we were going to rent. These pornographic movies. And one of the guys said, I raised my hand and said, you're not spending my dues on that. That was salt. It curtailed that whole movement right then. It changed the agenda for that whole party. Now, As we are salt, don't expect anybody to pat you on the back and thank you for it. Because usually we function as salt when there's conflict. And often it will produce conflict. And all sorts of motives can be imputed. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than I am? Oh, what about, you know. But it's still salt. Now, one reason I want to mention this about salt and light today is because I think we're living in a day where we are told to influence the world around us, to witness to our unbelieving friends, to reach people, we have to become so much like them as to move all offense. And that if they see that, you know, you're really no different than I am, then therefore our witness will be more winsome and they will accept the gospel. I think what Christ is saying is just the opposite. Let me give you an example. 
And this was where one of the revisions was offered. As I was growing up, my father was not a believer. He came to Christ later in life. That's the part I left out of it at the first service. And uh, he kind of had an unspoken, very spoken rule around our house. In our house, we don't talk about religion and politics. But he talked about politics every day, all the time. Well, I started really growing in Christ as a senior in high school. I mean, God turned my life upside down. I'd never read the Bible before. Now I want to read the Bible. I'd never really prayed before. Now I want to pray. I mean, nobody was telling me to do this. It just, it just, it was a change. And I, because my dad and I were such loggerheads about this, he said, don't ever preach to me. Do not, you know, when I bring it up, it just was such a point of tension. I had to just not even bring the subject up. And we were like this. So I found that when I'd be in my bedroom and it had a louvered door so I could hear someone coming, if I thought he was walking up there to talk to me, I would quit praying or I would shut my Bible. And I thought, maybe that's helping. Then I realized, you know, I don't think this is helping. So I just got to where if he walked in, if I was on my knees praying, I stayed on my knees praying. I'd say, yeah, Daddy, you need me for something? After that, the tension began to decrease more and more. And here, here's my point. The best thing you can do for your unbelieving friends is be who you are in Christ and not hide it. Now, I don't mean go out of your way to find things you disagree about. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Or to be condemning or harsh or pharisaical. What I'm talking about is when you try to hide your saltiness, you're not doing them any favors. It's, there's a, the best thing for an unbeliever is to see a true believer. So when this high school wrestler this past week, because of his Christian convictions, and he went on to say, I think girls should wrestle girls. He complimented her. He knew her. He said, I wish her the best. It has nothing to do with her as a person. He said, uh, this is just my conviction. In that sense, in that arena, it, it was salt. Now, what happens if we don't function as salt? In verse 13, Jesus says, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be trampled out, thrown out, and trampled by men. Well, salt in Jesus' day could become contaminated for a variety of reasons. If it was so, they wouldn't just throw it out on their plants or gardens or anything else they had. They took the salt that was contaminated and they put it on the walkway, like a gravel walkway, like you would do. You probably, maybe you'd... When we uh, make homemade ice cream on July the 4th, I don't dump the ice and rock salt when it's over in my yard. I take it to my, I mean, not my neighbor's yard. I take it to the gutter in the street. So it won't kill anything. Well, that's what they did. And so when Jesus says it's fifth for nothing but to be walked on, he meant they would, that's what they do with it. They pour it out there on the, on the path or the walkway or the street. It's not talking about hell there. This is not saying someone loses their salvation. He's basically saying a poor witness is useless. Pretty strong language. What should have been a great blessing even to the unbelieving world is now fed only to be walked on by the unbelieving world. All right, second metaphor, which is positive, light. Salt, I would say, emphasizes the negative aspect saw a light, the positive aspect. It assumes something. When Jesus says we're the light of the world, it assumes the world is in darkness. When the Bible uses the term darkness, it's talking about ignorance. 
Now, that doesn't mean ignorance as though someone's illiterate. That can be true, but primarily when the Bible uses the term great darkness, it means that there's ignorance about eternal truth, ignorance of the Word of God, ignorant of, uh, ignorance about ultimate issues. That's in darkness. So we may be very well educated. You may have more degrees than a thermometer. You may have books on every subject like our culture does. But we can and often are in complete spiritual darkness as a culture. We are in ignorance because of the lack of understanding of eternal truths. That's what is assumed here by saying it's in darkness. Do you realize that, of course, we're all products of our times, and, and we cannot understand how much of common truth there was, common beliefs, by cultures as a whole, even 60, 70 years ago, about Christian values and Christian theology. Do you know, according to Chuck Colson in his book, The Body, that during World War II and after Hitler had blitzkrieged his way across France and then demanded the unconditional surrender of the Allied forces in the European theater, here were thousands of British, French troops dug in along the coast of northern France in this last-ditch effort to hold off the German forces trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk, expecting to be obliterated by the Nazis. During that awful period, it is said that the British soldiers broadcast a brief message across the English Channel, and it had three words to it. Here were the three words that were broadcast. And if not, was it some kind of code? You have to have a book to decipher what that is. No? What's that a reference to? Speak to me, anybody. All right. It's the Old Testament. What characters? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Before King Nebuchadnezzar, the fiery furnace, here's what they responded back to the king. Our God is able to save us, and he will save us. And if not, we will remain faithful to him anyway. Now, is it not astonishing to think that in that day and time, that vague message was immediately understood by the British people? If we were to announce in our church, in our churches, on the airwaves, and if not, we would say, what? What's that? Where's the rest of the sentence? We've lost that. And so from, when it comes to ultimate truth, we're in great darkness uh, as, a, as a country and, and as a world. And so we no longer hold common religious beliefs. Well, what does light do? It exposes darkness. It's like being in a room that's completely dark. All it takes is one small light to be lit, and it drives the darkness. It expels the darkness from the room. The world is in a state of darkness about the things of God. Who has the truth? You have the truth, believer. We have the truth. Just like we're salt, we're the light of the world. And so there's an individual ministry we have as believers, but there's also corporate. When he says a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You can't approach a large city at night and, and not know that there's a city there just because of all the light. It's true in Jesus' day as well. We cannot be hidden. We should not be hidden. We must shine. That's to get the word out, to get the truth out about God and about Christ. And he compares trying not to do so like putting your life under a bowl or a bushel. 
So when you think, what difference can I make? You be who you are in Christ. You take every opportunity you can uh, in your natural flow of life to speak to people and you individually, um, in even small ways that may look in, inconsequential to you, but you realize that you are light. You're not the source of that light. That's Christ himself. But you are how he chooses to reflect himself. What are some of the results? Two results. People see. It says in the last verses there, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Where else will unbelievers see Christ at work if he doesn't see it in the lives of believers? What types of works? Well, our devotion and obedience to Christ, our worship, our devotion to his word, our standing for truth, our evangelism, our bearing up under being ridiculed and slandered and persecuted, all those things that he's described earlier there in chapter 5. And as a result of that, as they come to know that truth, they in turn will glorify God. The glory of God is a great thing we must aim at in everything for the kingdom. I want to give you two examples that I learned this past week of our corporate witness as First Presbyterian Church. And I don't do this enough. I don't hear these things enough. But these were two very encouraging reports that almost happened accidentally, providentially, you might say, to me. The first is about our corporate witness has to do with recorded sermons. Um, About a year ago, we said, let's don't make CDs of sermons anymore. Let's... Let's uh, just make them free. Put them on uh, Apple's iTunes site, and people can download them. And so we end up spending about $30 a month, and then to, well, we go through a process, and then they end up on iTunes. Later this week, this sermon will be there. So last weekend, somebody asked me, how many people listen to those? I said, I don't have a clue. I said, we started a year ago, and we, I don't guess we've looked at the statistics. Well, it used to be if there was a sermon... You know, if Jim Baird came here and hit one out of the park, we might get six CD requests. <laughs> I mean, it just wasn't, we didn't have many requests for that. So I asked Tammy, my assistant, and here's what I've learned since last February. The downloads, we've had 10,156. In the last 90 days, 4,605. So that's about 250 for each message, Sunday morning, Wednesday noon. I, mean, I couldn't believe that. Now, we don't promote that. We don't, there's one, you've got a web address on the back of the bulletin. That's it. I, I just found that encouraging, uh, though I don't have all the conclusive understanding of what all that means. The second has to do with the story in Haiti. For two or three years now, we've been heavily involved financially in, in Haiti with El Shaddai Ministries, which is a church planting network led by Haitians, Donnie and Louis St. Germain, and who are part of our denomination. And we've given lots of money. We've built uh, one whole church compound, a building, an orphanage, a business, pastor's residence. And some of us have been down there and seen that, that work. Well, a year ago, right after the earthquake in January, in February, we were contacted by Dr. David Nicholas, who was on the board of El Shaddai, my friend that just died a few weeks ago that many of you met. And Dave said, look, since the earthquake, roughly 300 to 350,000 people have moved from Port-au-Prince down to Kais. It's a city called Kais, about four hours by bus 
or car down, down the coast in the southern part of the, the island. And he said, we need another church there immediately. I mean, how often do you get an emergency church plant? We have one church there that has two to 3,000 people gathered there today. And um, so we did some investigation. Dave spoke by conference call to our session. He said, we need $45,000. He said, North Point, one of many Stanley's congregations in Atlanta, they're giving a tent, this big, huge tent. It's hurricane-proof. And we need the property. Can you all give the money to buy the property? There's a piece of property there, $45,000. So we gave the money. First Presbyterian Church, you gave the money. In April, two months later, four of us went down there. And honestly, when I asked questions, though we were not in that part of the country, I said, tell us what's happening down there on that property. Is the tent up? They said, well, the tent's not up. It ended up this tent's huge, and you can't just get a group of people to put it together. You've got to have a crane and all this kind of stuff. Well, I thought, oh, brother, you know, we told our people that the money was going to be given, there's going to be immediate results, and they were saying, we're afraid if we put the tent up, all these squatters are going to move in there, and we're never going to be able to use it for a church. We won't be able to get them out. So I was disappointed, and I wasn't sure what to make of all that. So two weeks ago, we have a meeting with some of the representatives from El Shaddai. They're here in Macon and meet with our missions committee and some others. And I, at the end of the meeting, I said, look, tell us what's happening on that piece of property. And I was kind of prepared to be disappointed. Well, the fellow pulled out of his big notebook, and he put two pictures in front of me. Now there's a church building on that property. (laughs) They decided, forget the tent idea, we're going to build a building. So they built a church building. They have a pastor named Pastor Mongerard. Those that speak French, I'm sure I just butchered that, but that's how it's spelled. And so they've got this congregation meeting there. On Friday, I mean, this is hot off the presses, folks. Friday, as in two days ago, I get this message from Sharon St. Germain, Donnie's wife. And it's coming from Donnie. He said, this has been an awesome week of ministry from both of our teams. These are medical teams from Chicago and from Charlotte, North Carolina. And they're ministering there in Kai's with the church that we bought the property for. He said, incredible things have been happening that can only be God-orchestrated. This week, the medical team from Chicago have been doing ministry in the downtown church of Lakaz. That's our church. And he said, that was constructed after the earthquake to minister to the massive influx of families who sought refuge in this poorer section of Kaz. Services in this church began last summer with Pastor Mongerard, a faithful man of God. On Tuesday, that was five days ago, A well-known gang leader had been experiencing excruciating pain in his right arm. He came to the medical team to ask for medication to relieve the pain that was being caused by a needle. The medical team was in disbelief of his request and asked him to explain. He began to share that several years ago he went to a witch doctor and asked him to make him a very powerful man. The witch doctor called upon his spirits and placed a needle in his wrist to empower him. The witch doctor told him not to remove the needle because it was the source of his power. The man did become very strong physically and very evil in the crimes he committed. With his strength, he rose to the recognition of a gang leader, and everyone in the community knew this and feared him. As the years passed, the needle kept moving up his wrist, then past his forearm, then past his elbow, and now into his upper arm, causing unbearable pain. The medical team listened to his story, and sure enough, when they felt his arm, they felt the presence of what seemed to be a needle. 
Pastor Mongerard and the medical doctor shared the powerful news of the gospel with him. The doctor went on to explain this needle had to be removed. The man in all these years did not remove it because it was a source of his strength. He had borne the pain for a long time, and now the response of the gang leader, he said, before you remove the needle, there's one thing I'd like to do. The team was thinking he probably wanted to go speak to a family member. What came from his mouth was totally expected. This is what he said. Would you pray for me now as I want Christ to be in my life? You and I cannot imagine the jubilation in the hearts of Pastor Mongerard and the medical team. As I write this testimony on Friday, February 25th at 2.15 p.m., our new brother in Christ is having the procedure done by the medical team to remove the needle. Isn't God great? Please keep praying for this brother and for the pastor as he does follow-up ministry. By the way, they were not successful on Friday in moving, removing the needle they're going to try again this week. That's fruit of your witness, okay? That's fruit of your corporate witness here, and I hope you're encouraged by that. You are salt, the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for calling us out of darkness into light. And we come from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, Some came to know you at an early age, others as adults, others late in life. Father, we all had the same need, and that was the need to be forgiven, to be given spiritual life through Christ, which you've done. May that be our trust, him and him only. We pray you might enable us in the brief lives that we have as a local congregation to be a corporate witness. Give us strength in our individual witnesses. There's no doubt people here, maybe young people, maybe high school students that are in some very difficult places in standing for you. Give them encouragement. Give them a sense of your presence. Give them a timely word that they know comes from you that they would not have been able to think of. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> we, uh, we picked a hymn, a song at the end called All to Us. It, it speaks some.